The following broadcast may contain free thinking and open-minded discussion, ideas, skepticism, and adult subject matter. Topics will be discussed using adult language, sometimes gratuitously. Get ready to move the conversation forward. This ain't your granddad's news and comment show. This is I Doubt It Podcast with Brittany Page and Jesse Dallimore. Welcome to the show and thank you for joining us. Episode 881 of I Doubt It Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Dollimore, joined today with the lovely, talented, scholarly, Brittany Page. With a fantastic conversation. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. In just a moment, our guest, our now multiple-time guest, Robert P. Jones from the Public Religion Research Institute, will be joining us in studio but before we do, I kind of want to outline, we had him on 2020, into 2020, September or so, and he is an amazing intellect and just an all-around kind of unicorn, a unique specimen of a, of a person who is both passionate about the topics we are, but also comes at it from a, a little different viewpoint and a religious background, being... Right. Um, Formerly, I don't know if he still considers himself Southern Baptist, but from that faith tradition, and it just does great work. Yeah. So I think you said he's the founder and president of the Public Religion Research Institute. Yeah, I didn't say it as uh, as succinctly. I I fumbled my words. Yeah. <laughs> and we had him on in 2020, I think you said, mm-hmm. uh, about his book, White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. And this time we're having him on for his new book, The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future. Yeah, This book is fantastic. It is so important. We took some time after the conversation to just talk to him a little bit about how important this book is, especially for someone like me coming from the background that I do which being raised by white supremacists and my parents trying to prevent me from learning about the history of this country, much like we're seeing in states across the country, especially in Florida, and not necessarily learning the realities of history. I've done my best as an adult to try to correct for some of that, Yeah, but, you know, not always possible to fully get that once you miss out on it in school. And I feel like this book was not only educational and helping fill some of those gaps in terms of the history of the country, but also it's inspirational. It's moving. I tried to read a passage to you out loud and started crying. So I, I was just so moved by the book and I think the conversation is so important. So we'll have a link to pre-order the book. It comes out September 5th. And you can pre-order it now on Amazon or Bookshop. And we are also going to be doing a giveaway because Robert P. Jones was kind enough to leave us with a copy of the book. So we're going to be doing a giveaway. Here's how the giveaway is going to work. Are you ready for this, Jesse? I don't know how. So I'm I'm learning with the audience how the giveaway is going to work. So... This conversation is going to go out on the podcast in audio format on I Doubt It Podcast, but it's also going to be up on your YouTube channel in a video. And so the plan is that if you leave a comment on the video on YouTube, that is what will enter you into the contest 
to win the book. The comment can say anything. We're not saying that you need to say a particular thing. It can say anything. You just need to comment, leave a comment, and we are randomly going to choose someone by noon Eastern time on Saturday, September 2nd to get that book out to the lucky winner. Which will be mailed to you then roughly around the same time that the book is released to the general public. Yeah. Yeah. So this is great. Um, we would encourage you to to let us know what you think about this. Uh, Robbie lives in the area, so he would be an easy get to, to come back in and answer some questions. And um, it, this is important work. It's a topic that we talk about a lot, white supremacy, white nationalism, and the the roots of it, the the integral foundational roots of white supremacy in the, in the founding of the United States and, you know, in his last book with Christianity as well. So uh, we'd love to know what you think. 657-464-7609. Of course, you can email a voice memo from your smartphone to idoubtit at dollamore.com. So without further ado, let's get to the interview with Robert P. Jones. Robert P. Jones. Thank you for joining us today. We appreciate your time. Oh, of course. Happy to be here. So last time we had on the show, it was September of 2020, smack in the middle, pre-vaccine COVID. Right. And it was over Zoom. <laughs> of course. And that interview did, uh, we put it up on YouTube just as like the audio. I did a like an intro for my YouTube channel and then, and it, you know, like 150 or 60,000 views. Oh, so wow. people, it really resonated with people. And I think that this topic has only gotten more important and more in the faces of people who maybe denied it, you know, the white supremacy. And now that white Christian nationalism is on the tips of even members of Congress, um, what was it like to, to take another stab at this topic? Well, I think for some of those same reasons, I felt like I had to write another book, um, you know. So in some ways, this book is kind of part three of the trilogy, the last three Books. So I started in 2016 with a book called The End of White Christian America, and then 2020, where we, we were talking, um, a, a book uh, called White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. This book is really tracing it back. I was wrestling it to the ground, pulling that thread, tracing it all the way back. Um, I, and I go back at least to 1493. We can talk about that later, but you know, tracing <laughs> all the way back, but also I think looking at contemporary communities that are really wrestling with these issues, not up here in the political stratosphere, but actually on the ground in their local communities. Yeah. Yeah. What was it about that year in particular that had you going back to that time? Yeah. Well, you know, I think we, we've had some, a lot of debates, right? Uh, the 1619 project sure. uh, that really challenged this idea that, you know, you could see the country's history in that microcosm. I, I often think of that postage stamp, right, that's got the all-white men kind of uh, surrounded uh, around a table with their quill pens and their knickers, you know, oh, on, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, uh, that that's, that is the origin story of the country, sure. right? And so I think one of the great gifts that the 1619 Project gave us was really blowing that up. And instead of that little tiny frame of those few people in that room being the story of America, of bring opening the aperture so we could tell a much broader story. And I feel like, you know, this, what I'm doing here is a sort of yes and uh, response to the 1619 Project and taking it even further back and pulling the lens back so that we not only see the first enslaved people, um, you know, uh, landing on the shores of the country, but we see 
the original inhabitants of this yeah, country sure. and European contact. And so that's what 1493 is about. Not the year that Columbus sailed the ocean blue, right? 1492 right. Uh, that we all learned about in elementary school. Also never stepped foot on the North American that's, continent. That's exactly <laughs> right. Yes. Never stepped foot here in the United States, despite the fact that every city, including yeah. the one we're in, has Columbus Circle and you know yeah. all of that. Um, uh, but 1493 was the year he went back to Spain uh, and and loaded up even more ships with more soldiers and more missionaries uh, and got the blessing of the Pope uh, at, at the time uh, to come in and conquer. Uh, and, and, you know, and there was this whole series of papal documents that uh, 1493 was kind of the capstone for. Uh, that These documents say things like um, that you have the blessing of the church to conquer, to steal, uh, to take property, and to submit the, the ones who survived, to submit these people to perpetual slavery, right? To do yeah. to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery. That's in the hands of the leader of the entire Western Christian Church um, at yeah. the time, and that's the doctrine of discovery, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah, and that's kind of the foundation on which you you build this book, right? Because you you kind of trace that through the five hundred years of history to where we are now, and how that has impacted things. Right. I mean, it's, I think it's just become more and more clear to me that we have these twin streams flowing up since before the country, right? And we are still, we have, we've not answered the question of like, which of these cultural streams uh, are we about as the country? And they, in, if, in a short, they are, on the one hand, this very old thing and from the doctor, directly from the doctor of discovery that says these lands are a kind of promised land for European Christians, right? Um, dedicated by God to the use of European, exclusive use of uh, European Christians, or on the other hand, are we a pluralistic democracy, mm-hmm. right? Where everybody, regardless of race or religion, uh, stands on equal footing uh, as citizens. Right. Do you find that, let me ask, what's your opinion about this? <laughs> that, you know, I, I think America gets a lot of cover from some of the, the deleterious effects of slavery and the, the, the genocide and the horrors that we visited upon, again, the yes and, not just uh, black Americans, but also indigenous peoples here. But do you think that because there's been so much hemming and hawing about Jefferson's crimes against humanity, Washington's crimes against humanity, Madison relative to being enslavers of human beings— but but also writing that, you know, Thomas Jefferson in his first draft of the Declaration talked about the evils of slavery and how we needed to root it out, but then never did anything about it, never didn't even free his slaves. I mean, it just, do you think that there's an element of the whitewashing of history where people can say, it's like Trump talking, I know I'm not getting to a question here, but uh, <laughs> Donald Trump talking out of, saying one thing out of one side of his mouth and the exact opposite out of other, so he gets covered to say, oh no, I said March peacefully and patriotically, even though he's inciting an insurrection. Do you think that that has been um, a real force, the, the giving cover because he said, yes, slavery is bad, but also profited from it? Well, of course. I mean, I think this kind of uh, paradox, right, of, of the, again, these two streams sitting side by side yeah. in American history, and, and they're mutually incompatible. Yeah. Right? I mean, these two things, either the country is actually a promised land, a kind of new Zion for European Christians, or it's pluralistic democracy. It can't be both, yeah, right? But we have been wrestling, as you said, from Jefferson to Madison. I've recently visited, um, you know, they're not far from D.C. here, uh, both of their uh, 
plantations, right? Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is to see the way in which in the last 10, 20 years, the story has changed. For about, sure. You know, what is happening there, the story of Sammy, uh, Sally Hemings, right, uh, in, at uh, Monticello, uh, the story of Madison's uh, enslaved, you know, people. that And, and I remember one of the starkest uh, images from Madison's uh, home is his study is like on the upstairs of this you know, manor house uh, overlooking the field, right? Uh, and so what you can imagine is that as he's sitting there writing the Constitution, know, yes, the Bill of Rights, right? right? You know, and these kind of high principles of freedom and rights and, uh, you know, what the state should protect, he, they're, he's overlooking enslaved yeah. people, right, and giving him the luxury and the ability to sit at that desk. Yeah. Right. Uh, by the fruits of their labor out in the field. Yeah. So and I, not not yeah. a metaphor, a literal right. thing that, yes. that that happened. Yes. And so I think we we've been dealing with this um, ambiguity, this dissonance uh, between our highest principles, you know, and our realities again since before the founding of the country. And I think one of the things that's happened is because of the way the the demographics of the country are changing now. This question is coming forward again, and it's coming forward in a way that has reality to it that we've never really had because of. The country was, demographically speaking, a supermajority of white Christian people, but that's no longer the case. Right. Yeah. Well, one of the things you talk about in the book is this idea that's gaining popularity within the conservative movement of not wanting to teach the reality of history because it will create white guilt or things along that line. Um, what would you say to that? I mean, what what is the benefit of truth telling, as you call mm-hmm. it in the book, and going through history and actually grappling with the reality of what we have done to people. Yeah. Well, it's kind of astonishing to me, actually. So as someone, so I grew up, right, Southern Baptist, evangelical in Mississippi. And so, you were in it. You know, and, and I, but, you know, when I hear the, most of the people who are making those arguments are from that world, right? They're kind of conservative, white, evangelical Christian people. And when I think about the kind of principles that were in that, like in things like Jesus saying, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free, right? Um, that this kind of uh, cover-up, uh, you know, is quite shocking, right, for a religion sure. that's built on this kind of principle of kind of uh, knowing the truth. That's where you find freedom from. Um, I, In my own mind, one of the things that's kind of spurred me along um, is, uh, is, a, is a great uh, quote by James Baldwin where he was asked about um, – uh, like African-American people, why aren't they more angry uh, at, at white people? Why isn't there more violence toward, toward white people? And he says, look, you know, um, honestly, uh, for many African-Americans, they have this perception and understanding of the kind of dilemma that white people put themselves in. And uh, by this combination of kind of doing one thing and saying another, uh, and he, he said they considered – he said that we, many of us consider them – the slightly mad victims of their own brainwashing, mm. right? And I feel like that's exactly what's happening right now is, wow. is there's this sense of kind of desperately trying to hold on to the brainwashing. I mean, after all, like, you know, it is uh, that white Christian majority that has historically written the textbooks, uh, right, uh, that, that are in, in schools um, that has kind of controlled the narrative, right? And I think this losing control of the narrative is why we're seeing this kind of great freakout moment and this real attempt uh, to, to control these curriculum. The last time we saw stuff like this, it was actually um, uh, following the, the South's defeat in the Civil War. 
uh, and where we had things like the Amer- the Daughters of the America uh, of the Confederacy. Yeah, yeah, uh, right. And right. they had a big educational curriculum sure. program. It wasn't just monuments, right? Uh, but even the monuments were educational. Uh, they were designed to be textbooks written in granite and bronze. And we're right? seeing a rerun yeah. of it with yeah. the Moms for Liberty. I mean, that's right. And yeah. also, yeah. we are. You, you, I don't know what the, the turn of phrase you were you used just now, but like they're, they they are they are extricating themselves from out of power through their their uh, dedication to the prospect of of rewriting history. Like Russell Moore a few months ago talked about pastors, multiple pastors coming up to him and saying, um, "What's this liberal talking points that you're going with?" Oh, right. When they're literally quoting Jesus, the <laughs> Sermon right. on the Mount, and he goes, "No, I'm literally quoting Jesus." He goes, "Oh well." Yeah, that just doesn't work anymore. That's that's weak. That's weakness. And yeah. so all these, and you know, I grew up evangelical and a Christian nationalist, fundamentalist, insane household in northern Idaho. Um, that's exactly what's happening. They want to control the culture so much that yeah. they're foregoing the tenets of their supposed, you know, deeply held religious scripture. Yeah. Right. So, no question, just... No, well, <laughs> you know, <laughs> blessed are the meek, right? Yeah, um, right. right? Um, sure. But, and and that weakness, right, meekness is seen as uh, 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 something unchristian is a remarkable do you turn. Do you think there may be a shift taking place, um, like a medium to long-term shift, where white supremacy has used religion as a vehicle to get where we are here, and now they're going to they'll jettison that? Because now the ultimate goal is, you know, a, a Western chauvinist, whatever, proud boy dystopia. Yeah, you know, I, I actually don't see them as that separate. Um, you know, that, that uh, you know, I don't think it's the case that um, Christianity has just been used as a tool by something that's outside of it called mm. white supremacy. Um, you know, when you, again, if you let's think of the benefits of this history, if you go back, right, um, it wasn't just Ferdinand and Isabella um, kind of, Going forward, they were like, no, we actually want the moral and religious authority uh, and justification for doing this. So who do they appeal to? They appeal to the Christian church, which willingly yeah. uh, become, aids and abets this you know, campaign of violence against anyone who's not Christian. I mean, that really is the—when you read these documents um, from the 15th century, they, that's the criteria. If you find anyone, on, anyone out in the world uh, who is not Christian, you have the right then to— kind of conquer them uh, and kill them, conquer them, steal their goods, uh, enslave them in the name of the church, right? So these things have been, it's not something reaching in and using the church. These things have been embedded in the Western Christian church uh, from the get-go. It seems like that is something that's difficult to convey to people or get them at least to acknowledge. And I remember later in the book, you specifically use Pope Francis as an example here where he had made a statement kind of apologizing for things in the past, but blamed it on adherents of the church, like members of the church rather than specifically the church Mm. itself. And I think there was a process where the church got closer in their eventual statement to taking the blame, but there was still some distance there. What do you think that is about the struggle to fully acknowledge the role that the church played in this violence and Uh, sanctioning this violence? So painful, that whole scenario, right? So, you know, Native American, indigenous people, both in Canada, the U.S., and, and North America, have been asking uh, the Catholic Church in particular um, as the direct you know, lineage to the Doctrine of Discovery because it was issued by um, Catholic Pope um, uh, to, re- to repudiate, to repeal the Doctrine of Discovery. Um, and it's fallen on deaf ears, I mean, as early as 
you know, 1972, there was a Vine Deloria Jr. wrote this uh, amazing um, uh, open letter to the Christian churches of North America, right? Just asking them to take responsibility uh, and to distance themselves from this from this doctrine. Um, pope Francis has come as close as any Catholic pope has come, right, to acknowledging it um, during his visit to Canada um, and uh, indigenous boarding schools, um, where he called it a um, penitential pilgrimage, right, when he went. And so his intent was to try to make amends, uh, but he showed up woefully unprepared. He fumbled some questions about the Doctrine of Discovery, seemed not to know what even the questioner, the, it was an indigenous reporter asking him, seemed not to even know what that was. He then comes back, and the Vatican does issue, um, uh, under his guidance, a, a, a kind of apology mm-hmm. uh, for it. But as you said, like I've described that apology um, this way, that if, if this was the kind of apology that I'd offered my wife, uh, for some dispute between us, we would still be in conversation, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, because it's a kind of half apology, really, yeah. right? It, it's like, well, if there were some bad actors that did these things in our name, we're sorry about that, whether they be from the church or from the government. But it never says these were official doctrines of the church handed to provide the moral justification for genocide, colonialism, slavery, and occupation, right, and and theft. Mm-hmm. Um, it just never says that. And that and full we're still accounting waiting. matters. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, Christian doctrine of repentance. You know, you don't get to repentance without confession, right? Right. <laughs> and, sure. And confession can't be hemming and hawing, right? It has to actually name the thing that happened right. in order to get to repentance, right? Yeah. I think you called it mental gymnastics in yeah. the book too. I was like, wow, Robbie's going hard on this one. Yeah. <laughs> That makes me so angry, right? Because yeah. the church, you know, is again as a Christian, as the church that preaches repentance, right, of sin, sure, acknowledgement of sin, repentance from sin, turning, you know, that whole idea. The Greek word is like, you know, it's like missing the target and and turning another way. Like all all this, you know, making a U turn. Like all of these metaphors that get preached about, yeah. And yet, when it comes to the church itself, yeah, we can't quite bring ourselves to do it, right? Well, it's it's extra egregious for the fact that. You know, maybe not today, but in in a bygone era, the, the era that you're writing about, especially in those early days, the Columbus days, and you know, uh, the the church was it. It it was the uh, yeah. the ultimate power on the planet. And unless you were a a, a monarch, a sovereign, you you just obeyed. Yeah. I mean, unless you're Henry VIII, or, you know. Well, the so. reason why they appealed. So again, I should be clear too that this is prior to the Protestant Catholic split, right? So this is 15th century. So that means that there are no Protestants. All of Western Europe is Catholic yeah. um, at, at this point. And so the appeal to the Pope in Rome is the appeal to the only thing resembling international law that existed at that time, right? Because uh, all these other kingdoms and fiefdoms were more local. So the way you get a referee between Spain and Portugal uh, is that's the only appeal, is is this appeal to the Pope in Rome, which was the kind of closest thing to an international authority that existed um, at the time. And it also had the benefit of you know, being seen to be, you know, the Pope as Christ's vicar on earth, right? Sure. Um, yeah. Right. And so the, you you believe there is a straight line. I do believe. Yeah. I'm setting you up. A little peek behind the curtain here. <laughs> that's how it works. Um, there is a straight line between that doctrine and then into what we would, you know, maybe classify as modernity with, with the enslavement of millions and millions and millions of um, Africans and then African-Americans from the, the doctrine of discovery. Well, this is the thing I became more and more convinced of in the, in the book, right? And, and I should say that, so I've got a PhD in religion, I've got a seminary degree. 
this was not something on my radar, the Doctrine of Discovery, right? Maybe I heard the term, but yeah, I didn't know it, it did not show up as something like a significant watershed moment in, you know, Western uh, Christian history. Didn't register that at all. So I think, to me, um, once I started reading these documents, and they're online at the org. by the way, if you, anybody wants to read them, they're in Latin, they're in English, you can read to your heart's content. Um, and you, when you read these documents and you realize, oh, wait a minute, the transatlantic slave trade doesn't get off the ground without this kind of moral justification, sure. right? The um, the genocide against indigenous people all over the Americas doesn't really get off the ground without this kind of permission from a religious authority, right, to do these awful uh, things. And then when you start watching it through, it's not just that it showed up and got all that off the ground and went away, um, but it keeps showing up, right? And so it is, you know, all these terms we have, manifest destiny, America is a new Zion. Um, you know, it's a city set on the hill. Um, you know, for, to the be an example, yeah. example of the rest of the world. All of these have a straight line back to this logic, right? That that there's something superior about Western, uh, like European civilization. There's something superior about Christianity, and it's so superior, in fact, that it justifies violence um, yeah. in, in order to kind of spread uh, its superior message around around the world. And then, just to be real quickly, just Practically speaking, um, you know, it does show up, right, in things like uh, Declaration of Independence, right? It has, uh, you know, all these kind of nice things. And uh, then down there, it's got this line about merciless savages, right, yeah. um, in, in the Declaration of Independence. The Constitution, right, um, ex- specifically excludes uh, Native Americans, right, from the protections um, in, the, in the Constitution. And on and on and on. It's in U.S. law. Um, it shows up as recently... Um, as Ruth Bader Ginsburg citing it uh, in a in a uh, case, um, you didn't know, know very yeah, disappointed. Like didn't directly, know this. Yeah. you know. So that's recent. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. and it was a, a majority opinion. It was. that she wrote like an eight one decision yes. that she penned, right? Citing, but there's the a doctrine. footnote one yeah. in that decision is a direct citation of the doctrine of discovery. So no one is let off the hook in this book, is what we're getting on. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm Which is the way it should be. Yeah, yes, no, yeah, I think no, that's right. And, yeah. and but I, I think it's because I think in, again until we face. Yes. This kind of force, it has been such a force right. deep in our DNA. Right. I, you know, I think we're not going to be able to free ourselves. Right. Of it. Do you think um, we're, at a, we're, we're at an inflection point in, or near an inflection point in America because of the fact that this is on people's radar now, that we do have, you know, now former congressmen like, like Steve King going on MSNBC and talking about what other group, what other ethnicity has contributed more mm. to civilization than white people. I mean, yeah. it's in people's faces. Do you think we're getting closer to, you know, Christians and others um, coming to grips with just what has been created? I think so. Um, you know, so one of the things that's happened um, since, uh, uh, the last book uh, is I've been invited into about a, over a hundred white Christian churches mm. who actually want to talk about these issues. And, you know, if you'd said to me a decade ago, would there be a lot of Christian churches wanting to talk about like white Christian churches wanting to talk about white supremacy and like putting the word white supremacy in the title of an event yeah. that's going to happen at their church? Like I would have said, no way is that going to happen, but it, that is happening. So wow. I think the shift um, is had, where, where I think many white Christians are deeply troubled, like by this history that's been surfaced now, and others are doubling down, and that's where we are, right? I think there's yeah. some who are leaning in, some who are doubling. So down. what's the flavor? That's my little cute. Like, yeah. what is the flavor of the churches you were in? Are they 
Are they more liberal, a Methodist type, or are they Southern? Well, I mean, what, what's no, the it's makeup? Been a, it's been a real mix. Um, you know, it's been and, and it's been not just yeah Unitarian churches in Massachusetts, yeah, right? right? Yeah, um, yeah. It's been um, you know Baptist churches in Louisville, Kentucky, hmm. and um, oh. you know Methodist churches in New Orleans, uh, and another Baptist church in Georgia, right? So it's been a lot of Baptists, not a lot of Southern Baptists, I will mm-hmm. say, um, <laughs> uh, but other kinds of uh, Baptists uh, across the South, Methodists, Lutherans. Episcopalians. Um, and then the other thing that's been nice to see um, is that in many of these, um, you know, Martin Luther King said, right, 11 a.m. on Sunday morning is the most segregated yeah. hour in America. That's largely still true sure. uh, today. Uh, but what has been happening um, that I've seen some hope in is many um, kind of predominantly white, predominantly black churches have been coming together uh, to do things like read books, um, I've been at several of those things where I've come in to talk, and it's been a mixed group of two different churches who came together. Um, like this past spring, I was at Ebenezer, um, Martin Luther King Jr. in Atlanta, uh, a historic church, uh, but also St. Luke's uh, Episcopalian hmm. uh, church that joined together with them to kind of talk about um, that's Warnock's about these issues. Yes, former that's right. church, right? That's right. Yeah. Yep, correct. Yeah. Yep. Well, and you have a, a plea to your fellow Christians in here. Do you feel like the message is? I don't know, easier received from someone who shares the faith, who kind of comes from the background that you do? Do you think that you're able to speak to them in a way that they are accepting it because you come from the background that you do? I hope so. I mean, you know, there's, there's, it's not possible really for me to write a finger wagging book unless it's pointing back at me. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm deeply in this world. My, my parents, my family, my, you know, a lot of friends still, you know, Baptist pastors in the South. I mean, this is a world that I'm deeply connected to. Um, so, you know, yeah, I, I hope that somebody looks like me with my background. Um, and and here's the thing. You hear all this stuff about, yeah, we don't want to make white people feel uncomfortable, right? Or we don't want to shame yeah. uh, people. But I, I could tell you, like, you know, there's certainly some hard moments, like especially looking at my own family's history, coming to grips with some of that. Um, that I did in the last book, White Too Long, um, most uh, specifically. But overall, my experience, and certainly there have been some tears shed, right, uh, by reading some very difficult things that were very personal, um, very close to home. But at the end of the day, um, uh, that hasn't been the overwhelming experience. I do think it's been one of, uh, like, coming to health, um, healing, integrity, uh, and those are, like, those are liberating, right, things. Those aren't, like, those don't chain you up. Those like set, they do literally set you free. Yeah. yeah. Uh, right. Cause you're no longer trying to protect uh, all these things that you kind of know are not really legitimately protectable. Yeah. There's yeah. definitely some deliverance aspects yeah. to that. Uh, the other thing, and I'm, we're not ready to end this, but I do, you just touched on it and reminded me that I think there's uh, the yes and element of mm. this to the, to the 1619 project. I grew up in Northern Idaho on the Nez Perce Indian reservation. Mm. So uh, I'm not a member of the tribe. I'm not, um, native, uh, indigenous, but um, I often get this criticism in videos I do about like reparations and um, have you gotten some feedback from indigenous people that, hey, you know what? Awesome. Thank you for including us mm. too, because they're oftentimes ignored and I'm guilty of it, ig- ignoring their 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 story and their voice in in our history. Yeah. Well, I, well, the book's not out yet, so we'll see. We'll see how oh. it goes, right? Um, uh, but, but I do hope that's one thing I've been faithful to here is because I, I think it's what's important is if we only tell this as a kind of a black-white dynamic, right, and, and story, we really have missed um, 
a big part of the American story, um, and including the original Americans, yeah. right, um, who are here. Um, but I think the other thing is it, it it tends to also let white Christians off the hook in a way, right? As if, oh, everything's fine except this problem we had with slavery, mm. right? Yeah. Uh, but now we fix that, and so now we're fine again, right? Um, but what? It, but when you realize that, like, oh, those same sentiments, they gave people permission to enslave people kidnap them from their homes, carry them across the ocean, and uh, keep them for generations in chains. Um, that same logic is the same logic, uh, like in the Mississippi Delta, right? Uh, before enslaved people could be brought into the Mississippi Delta, uh, that land was occupied by uh, Choctaw, Creek, uh, uh, and, and others, um, Native Americans, and they had to be forcibly removed right. uh, from, the, from those lands. And so the same logic that uh, killed you know, many of them, uh, and then the Trail of Tears, right, pushing them off the land at the point of the bayonet and the force of the U.S. government uh, off to Oklahoma, most of them, mm-hmm. uh, uh, where they many of them had to walk. Um, Andrew right? Jackson was a monster. <laughs> and yeah, and under Andrew Jackson, that's right, yeah. um, uh, 1820s, 1830s. Um, and so, like, you know, when I, it's funny, when I grew up in Mississippi, I did wonder, like, man, why are all these institutions, like, suddenly pro- cropping up in the 1830s? Like my little Baptist college. Founded in 1830-something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were all of these older things that were like 1830, 1840. And like, oh, well, that's when we finally pushed the Native Americans off the land and claimed it, right, yeah. uh, for, for, for ourselves. So I think telling these two stories together d- means like, oh, wait, there's a problem much deeper than slavery here, right? As bad as that was, it was a symptom sure. of a much deeper uh, problem and, a, and, and one that uh, we really ought to get to the root of if we're going to live into a better a better future. Well, and in the book, you talk about historical examples and contemporary examples in Mississippi, Minnesota, and Oklahoma. And you were actually on the ground talking to people in these communities and, you know, your visit to the Emmett Till Memorial and kind of the commentary surrounding all of that really stands out in my mind. What was it like for you to go into those communities and talk to people and learn from them as they were engaged in this truth telling and attempting to make this, this progress. Yeah. It, it was remarkable, uh, really. Um, you know, particularly Mississippi. So I'm from Jackson, right? So that's the city <laughs> or the capital city. Uh, my parents did live in Greenville, which is up in the Delta near that way. So I have some familiarity, but I never lived there uh, myself. And, but you know, if you were to say like, where's maybe one of the hardest places you could do this kind of work, racial reconciliation work in the country, it would be the Mississippi Delta, right? And yet here we were, um, and, and I should say like 20 years ago, if you had driven through Tallahatchie County where Emmett Till was killed and where his trial was, there was no markers. There was nothing there telling that story on the ground, even though the world knows that name, right? right? Um, uh, and it was kind of in many ways a spark of this modern civil rights movement. Um, you know, Rosa Parks talked about thinking about Emmett Till. John Lewis talked about the effect that Emmett Till's murder had on his life. And, and, uh, and yet there on the ground, there was nothing. And so this intrepid group of not well-funded local people and, and these were people who were, again, so very rural. The, the, the county seat has a population of 600 and something people, right, uh, in Sumner, Mississippi. Uh, but the local people who knew each other and knew each other's histories and knew each other's relatives across lines of race decided to get together and make a commitment to telling this story. And these were descendants of uh, enslavers and descendants of the enslaved and sharecroppers deciding to kind of let's put down a marker and let's – make something different for our children and our grandchildren than we've inherited. I mean, it's just a, such an inspiring 
story. I mean, literally no resources, right? And they kind of set up building this from scratch um, uh, and, and have just succeeded, by the way, just a few weeks ago. This isn't in the book because it just happened um, that, that President Biden um, just announced uh, that there's going to be a new uh, Emmett Till and Mamie Till Mobley um, National Monument that's going to be jointly held in, in uh, Chicago and in the Delta in Mississippi. Um, and so they'll now be a federally funded permanent uh, exhibit. And federally protected and federally from protected. vandalism that's and correct. all the other nonsense that has gone yeah. on. Do you, so it, you, it was an organized um, failure on the part of Mississippi education to not teach this. You say in the book that it was later in your academic life, I don't remember exactly yeah. when, maybe after college, that you learned about the story of Emmett Till. Yeah. It's kind of the same thing we're seeing in Florida and Arkansas and yeah. all over the country with the CRT panic and, you know, dropping AP black history. Was it, it was an organized out of uh, denial or was it organized out of embarrassment? Like what was the, I think a little of both, uh, you know, this con- it was clearly a conspiracy of silence though. And that's a pattern that I saw in, in Oklahoma. It's a pattern I saw in Minnesota. There's horrific acts of white racial violence followed by overt acts at mitigating, expl- explaining it away and then forgetting, sure. putting it away and never talking about it again. Right. Um, so it's talked about in the African-American communities, but not talked about in the white uh, Greenwood uh, in yeah. Tulsa is a yeah. clear example. I mean, when that HBO show came out that we didn't watch, but yeah. uh, the, the cop show, it's like a superhero show. You remember the name of it? I don't. Oh, the Watchmen. The Watchmen. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And people are like, like my best friend is like, I, this was a true story. I had no idea this was right. true. I'm like, yeah, man, it, it's just not taught, especially yeah. like you just said in white communities yeah. and white schools. And it seeped over too. And one of the more remarkable stories in, in Tallahatchie County is um, this amazing uh, man named Jerome Little, African-American man, uh, grew up very, very poor. Um, and he learned about Emmett Till's story when he was in the military in France, mm. even though he grew up in Tallahatchie County. Wow. Right. And so he was actually one of the ones who came back and said, okay, we are going to tell the story. Uh, and ones that got this off the ground uh, at, at the local level there, because he just could not believe. He's like, this happened down the road for me. Yeah. right? And I'm in France when I find out about it from talking from conversations with his, his uh, fellow soldiers. Yeah. Well, and those are inspirational stories when you hear like, you didn't have the opportunity to learn about Emmett Till. He didn't have the opportunity. And, you know, you create the Public Religion Research Institute. You dedicate your life to writing books and educating people on these topics. He wants to come back and dedicate himself to making sure the community knows about it. But most people are just going to be ignorant of these things unless they have the drive or they encounter books like this. And I think that's the scary thing that we're facing right now with these attempts to prevent history from actually being taught do you feel optimistic about where we're headed? Well, uh, it depends <laughs> on the day, maybe what's happening. Um, but, uh, but I will say this, that um, we always see a backlash when there's movement forward in progress, right? Yeah. We saw this after the Civil War, saw it after Reconstruction. Uh, we saw it in the 1920s, the rise of the KKK and Jim Crow. Um, uh, saw it after the Civil Rights Movement. And I think we're seeing it again today. But what that means is it is a negative response to movement, right, and this sense of momentum that's happening. And I do think that um, what we've experienced the last few years, the Black Lives Matter movement, has permanently changed the landscape, right? Uh, the 1619 Project and other places, I don't think there's any, like, rewinding the clock back now before before that. So that, that means that what we're seeing is this desperate reaction mm. to the changes that are actually 
taking place and the demographic changes, right. That are, that are um, in the countries every, every year, uh, you know, the, the, um, uh, if you kind of look at like uh, grade school all the way through high school, every year um, the grade goes up in which everybody below that is majority non-white. Mm. Right. Oh, um, wow. This is kind of ticking up um, as we go. Um, you know, we already passed the threshold of, of not no longer being a white Christian country. Right. The, the number of, Again, white Christians 20 years ago was 54%, the beginning of Barack Obama's run for the presidency. Today it's 42%, right? And so we're already seeing this kind of cultural shift, the demographic shift. I think that's also why we're seeing this, okay, last-ditch, desperate effort. Death now. You know, by hook or crook to, um, and mostly crook uh, to kind of hang on uh, to, this, uh, to this history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and also why we're seeing the monuments coming down, right, and, and uh, the stories uh, uh, changing, and then this is the backlash to it. So I'm, I'm hopeful in that I, d- I think the people on the back foot are the ones reacting uh, to it, but they're and they're reacting because things, in fact, are changing. You, you people like Tucker Carlson, yeah, Ron or, DeSantis, yeah, uh, the Southern Baptist yeah. Convention, right, which is uh, completely doubling down, right, yeah, uh, on their. Which is again, it's, it's, it's I should say it's the nomination I grew up in, so I'm, I'm not sort of sure. picking on them out of out of turn here, but you know. It's, it is really striking that, that the largest Protestant denomination in the country is the one that was founded to make slavery compatible with the gospel in 1845. Yeah. Preceded the Civil War. Talked many about ways. it in your last book. Yeah, was the dress rehearsal to the political secession in many ways. And that is still the denomination today that is still the largest uh, denomination, uh, Protestant denomination in the country that is absolutely doubling down. Uh, they're, you know, about uh, erasing our history, not, uh, you know, the kind of anti-critical race theory, uh, stuff and you know the only thing um, I have seen there's six Southern Baptist seminaries. The only thing I've ever seen the presidents of those seminaries get together and issue a statement on is critical race theory, mm. right? Aligning themselves with with uh, former President Trump after he got on board with yeah. uh, critical race theory. So this is kind of a you know yes we're on the train and signaling we're on the train. But think about that for a minute, right? Here are the six presidents of the seminaries of the largest Protestant denomination in the country. And the only thing they can think is worth their voice, their collective voice is a denial that systemic racism has been a, a, a huge factor in our history. Yeah. So not poverty, not by the way, uh, child sex abuse, which is right. a huge problem. And which is churches. another thing they're doubling down. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. You know, name your not climate change, not you know, but this this denial of history is the thing that is worth their time. Wow. Do do you you know since you brought up uh, Voldemort, um, <laughs> do, former president, ex president no. Trump, how 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 much do you see that joke really did not land? Sorry about that, everybody. Um, I was a little slow yeah. on the. I was like, wait a minute, did he talk about Voldemort? Oh no, <laughs> I'm not even a Harry Potter nerd. Uh-huh. Um, how much do you see like modern politics, post-Trump politics, mm. uh, or you know, mid to post-Trump politics? We we're not post-Trump. Um, tell, you that, wish. Tell, tell that to all the people tonight at the debate. No <laughs> uh, how much do you see that as a driver, or at least a, a sustainer of white supremacy as we know it, and the this obviously this drive? you know, the Chris Rufos of the world yeah. with CRT and we'll just make it whatever we want it to be. It doesn't have to actually be a CRT. How much do you see politics as a driver of, of maintaining um, white supremacy? Yeah. Well, it, 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 it's always been a huge you know part of it, but the, um, the thing I'm thinking about is this missed opportunity with the Republican party 
um, after Romney's loss, right, the Republican Army was, Party was licking its wounds, mm-hmm. commissioned this huge study to figure out what happens, and, where are we going to go? Yeah. And like they, they, they say we should be a big tent party. We should stop being the party of white Christians. We should be a big tent party. We should reach out to Latinos. We should moderate our message on immigration. All right. We should kind of have a broader platform, right, um, to attract a broader audience. And then Trump comes along and trashes the entire thing, right, Um, and does exactly the opposite of what the party itself said they needed to do to be a successful party, you know, Democratic, uh, uh, like small d, Democratic Mm -hmm. uh, party uh, in the the country. And it it is remarkable how how opposite, you know, that has happened. And I think what what, um, Trump has done with the kind of MAGA theme, and again, I think the – um, that last word again is where mm-hmm. all the power is. It's not really in the Make America Great part. It, it's it's that nostalgia, that reaching back to this former time, and you know the wink, wink, nod, nod. When people like us ran the country, yeah, right. Um, and that's white Christian people. That's and he uses you know that these phrases like if you don't vote for me, we're not going to have a country anymore. Sure, right? right. And that's the give dead giveaway, right? Um, so what does he mean by that? He means this white Christian doctrine yeah. of discovery. Rooted country. Yeah, right? If you don't have borders, yeah. you don't have a country. Yeah. We need to yeah. keep everybody in who's here, the white people, and, you know, Tucker Carlson yeah. talking about the great replacement theory and That's right. low birth yeah. rates and all of the nonsense that, you know, um, the, the audience knows we talk about it all the time. But Brittany was raised in a, like a literal white supremacist household. Mm-hmm. And the things that were talked about in whispers when she was a kid are now broadcast on yeah. Fox News on a nightly basis. It's, yeah, that's where I was going to. I think that's the thing that that the Trump presidency and that Trump era did is it made it it gave people permission to say these things out loud. That's what I say right? all the time. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, and so you know, stand back and stand by uh, to the Proud Boys. Find right. people on all sides at Charlottesville. Sure. Right. Uh, these are not, not mistakes. David Duke. Yeah. I mean, that's there's right. there's a million different yeah. examples of it. So these are these are not mistakes, right? These are very deliberate signals um, here attacking. Uh, Colin Kaepernick, right, African American and NFL sure. player, right, uh, picking his targets that way. These are all calling the prosecute the, the black prosecutors and the black judges racist right now. It's all kind of and playing thugs. the same set of cards. Yeah. That's right. Um, so I think that's what's happened. Is it, it? So I think there's something um, pretty scary about that. Um, there may also be something though about bringing it out in the open. And we, there, we actually know what we're talking about now, right, and what we're fighting over. Now, and I think there may be something useful, I, I won't say healthy, but useful uh, strategically about that, that we are talking about white supremacy, right? And we can say that out loud and, and people don't go, oh, no, you know, yeah. no, actually, we're talking about white supremacy here. Yeah, I, no, I agree with that because I think I was someone who was maybe lulled to sleep in a false security of the stability and the foreverness of America, you know, like I was brainwashed by Aaron Sorkin's you know, writing uh, or whatever yeah. <laughs> and, and watching our Republic almost collapse and our yeah. democracy almost ended in 2021 on January 6th. Yeah. That, it really lets me know just how fragile this thing we have is. Yeah. And you know, the thing that stuck with me um, uh, too, is the, um, the, the last uh, image of the video that the house select committee put together of all those clips, right. Of, of that, of awful violence um, looks like something out of Les Mis, right? Uh, it's this barricade, and it's got two people standing on it with two flags. And I think this is, like, notable. Like, the two flags are a Trump flag and a Christian flag. Yeah. And that's what's on the barricade, yeah. right? Um, and you saw those you saw crosses, Bibles, uh, T-shirts with all these Bible verses on them. 
Confederate flags, right? Uh, sure. All of it in a kind of this kind of, you know, unholy amalgamation uh, there that I, and again, you know, that we have to read that that's white supremacy and Christianity. And really it's the doctor of discovery yeah. still alive and well. <laughs> the right? only thing that would have made it more lame is more French is yeah. to replace the hangman's gala with the guillotine. Yeah. Right. And it yeah. would have been a little on the nose. Yeah. yeah. Well, one of the things we talk about on the show a lot is unlearning and relearning, obviously given our backgrounds. I mean, if you're, sure. if you're raised by white supremacists, hopefully there's a lot of unlearning that's happening. Yeah. Um, you talk about your reeducation journey over the past decade, I think is how you phrase it. Um, what motivated that for you? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, I think it was, uh, I, I, I did not have, for all your um, biblically literate uh, uh, watchers, I did not have my road to Emmaus, uh, you know, uh, epiphany moment where all of a sudden everything became clear and now I'm on this. It was, um, I think, a, a sort of painfully slow process, right, where it was just sort of like, one thing after another, um, I think it was certainly, like many people said, and people I interview um, that are white, um, you know, it was this kind of Charlottesville, um, you know, uh, uh, the violence there and seeing people look like they're out of a Gap commercial marching with tiki torches and saying out loud, like, not just like racist, you know, like things against African-Americans, but like Jews will not replace us. Like, right. so Nazi fascist stuff right, yeah. coming out. Um, so I think it was that uh, kind of partially um, as well. And then I think just the the way, again, that the um, the sort of MAGA Trump movement made the saying of these things out loud um, uh, more palatable in certain circles. So I think it was partially that that sort of made me start digging back, uh, you know, through kind of and, and realizing the country was at a different place that demographically speaking and that given those demographic changes, this was likely to be a very volatile moment um, yeah. and a moment where, um, you know, we really did need to relearn our, our history. And and for me, uh, I don't like being lied to. I mean, it's like that. So the kernel of this was like me realizing like, huh. So the pastors that I was in church with, the Sunday school teachers that I sat before, you know, my, my public school, I went to public school, right? The mm-hmm. public school teachers and the people who decided on what the curriculum was, they all lied to me. Yeah. Right. I don't like being lied to. And I was just angry about it. Right? Having the world misrepresented to you. Yeah. yeah. Right. And By so people you were instructed to. And I loved trust. and respected. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, in this, yeah. I, I, I'm resonating with this so much because yeah, me too. I hold a lot of the religious figures in my life in contempt because they were liars. They were grifters. They, and I was instructed, you know, touch not God's anointed. They're, these are men of God, Kenneth Copeland, all these assholes. And I just it. It feels like it, a betrayal when yeah, someone absolutely. that you respect and that you want to be teaching you the truth. You you learn that that's not actually what was happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it just left me very ill-equipped, yeah. right, to actually live in the world with integrity, mm-hmm. right. And so if I wanted to live this life of integrity and wanted to kind of understand who I was and where I came from and who we are as a country, um, I think that's really what this has been about. It's been a decade of trying to wrestle that question to the ground. Do you yeah. think, do you think that the, there, that there was mo- intent and motivation behind it? Um, because it almost worked and had it worked, you would have been one more person, a cog yeah. in the machine, but it didn't work. And now you're working against that. So do you think that there's like sinister intent or is it just, they, they're true believers? You know, I think it's more self-interest um, than anything else. And then the kind of people sticking back and I know I'm going to, you know, continue this lie, continue mm. this myth. 
Sure. But we're, we were all invested in it, right? Um, and, and frankly, uh, self-interest, you know, would declare, oh, well, let's just kind of keep this going, right? Where, because surely um, if everybody believes that, like, you know, I'm a straight white man who's Christian, uh, well, hell, I should be at the top of the pyramid, right? right. Um, so there's a lot of self-interest in that. But I yeah. think there's all, this is what people miss, though. I do think that that there is self interest though in knowing the truth, right? And and uh, and being able to again like act with integrity, you, which you can't do if you don't even understand the ground you're you're standing on. Right. So. You can't come and find those solutions yeah. if you if you don't know what you're. And working you certainly through. can't be to put it in Christian terms. You certainly can't be in right relationship with your fellow human beings. Right. Right. If right. you don't even understand who you are and how you get to be, you know, where you are, and you don't understand how how um, you know. They got to be where they are, um, and you certainly can't be in right relationship with God, right, for those who are kind of still thinking about that, you know, Christian frame. Yeah, yeah. So you're optimistic. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's again, it is a mix. I mean, I do think, though, you know, the second part of the title here um, does nod to, you know, a path to a shared American future. I I think these next five to ten years are going to be very difficult years for the country. I say Um, on YouTube a lot that it's going to get worse before it gets better, but I think it will get better. I think that's right. And you look at the numbers. Um, there's only one chart in this book, by the way, um, uh, despite uh, my day job. Uh, and it, it is basically a, a, a polling question we wrote to kind of try to capture this idea of the doctrine of discovery. And it is an agree-disagree question. I think here's some hope in this question. Uh, do you agree or disagree, right, uh, that America was ordained by God to be a promised land for European Christians where they could set an example for the world? Uh, 30% of the country agrees with that question. Hmm. But that means that two-thirds of the country disagrees with that question. So in the America we live in today, by margin of two to one, people reject that anti-democratic uh, uh, stream uh, that has come through uh, our lives. The, the, the challenge and the problem is um, that a majority of one of our two political parties believes that that is true. And right. that's the Republican parties. Are you going to continue and, to ask that question? Yeah. Yeah. We're going to continue to track it. Yeah. yeah that's great. Uh, going forward. Um, uh, and, they're, and they're like, Four times as likely as Democrats, right? To believe that, to to believe that, and there's one major religious group: white evangelical Protestants, so well, they're Southern Baptists, right? Yeah, from the pulpit, it's taught. That's yeah. right. Majority of whom ordained still by believe God. Constitu- I mean, they're yeah. teaching now that the Constitution mirrors Deuteronomy and like separation of powers. Yeah. That's right out of Deuteronomy. It's yeah, like, what are you talking about? Right, and never mind that Deuteronomy is not really Christian; it's Jewish. Right. But, uh, right. <laughs> Yeah. Well, we could talk to you for hours. Yeah. Seriously, um, the oh, list, we're not going to. The, <laughs> I mean, I I would love to, but this book was. I mean, it was so informative. It was so educational. It was moving. I read a part out loud to Jesse this morning and started, started crying, crying because it was so poetic. And I'm I'm not going to give it away. You have to get the book in it, order to read it. It really but, is. This is transformative. It, it's what a what an amazing follow up. To white too long. Oh, yeah. thank you. It really is yeah. amazing. Yeah. So we end all of our interviews with a question that kind of touches on the spirit and underlying theme of the conversation mm. today, which is that unlearning and relearning. And we like to encourage our audience to change their minds when the evidence mm. changes or as their understanding of the evidence changes. Yeah. So in the spirit of that, Robbie, what is the last thing that you changed your mind about? <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's see. Um there's a couple of things come to mind. Um, so I'll give you two and you can decide which one is more interesting maybe. Um, uh, so, so one is again, I, I, I don't think I had the experience of like, you know, light switches going off. That's really not the way my brain works, but I, I, I have realized that one of the things this last book did 
uh, for me is utterly convince me about something different about the relationship between morality and religion. Because um, I, I was always taught, right, that uh, morality flows from religion, mm-hmm. right? And, and that's one of the reasons the danger of the secularization of the country is that if we have all these secular people, they're not going to be moral because what motivation do they possibly have to be moral if they're not religious? Like that's the way the argument went. How will they know murder uh, is wrong? Right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, and so this this dilemma. But I, you know, I think I've become more and more convinced. Again, you know, when you read these documents from the highest religious authority in the land, right, giving Christians the the permission to kill and enslave, it calls them to question that relationship between morality and religion. And I think that's the thing that's kind of flipped it around for me is that you know what. The responsibility isn't for me to kind of know the best tenets of my religion so I can then pass along a kind of moral worldview. I think the the job for every generation is to sort of like use our best moral intuitions to kind of sift and figure out what in religious traditions are worth keeping and which are worth jettisoning, hmm. right? Um, and that's that's kind of the work of faithfulness. It, so it's in way who's like turned it on its head um, uh, for me. Mm-hmm. Um one other one I can think of is this kind of more recent. Um, uh, so uh, my, my son is, is 13. My wife's Jewish. And um, so we were kind of thinking about this kind of coming of age, bar mitzvah kind of stuff. And we're not really going to do a bar mitzvah, but we're still thinking about coming of age. And um, how are we going to introduce him to each of our traditions? You know, we, I mean, we do stuff at home, but like in a formal way during his 13th year, what are we going to do? Um, and so the question of Jesus uh, came up, right? And so what do we what do we teach him, uh, right? And what do we make sure? And, and it, what I figured out is that um, in relearning here that um, I've had to rethink uh, virtually everything I learned about Jesus <laughs> growing up, and that one of the ways I've done that is through reading black theologians. Mm. Uh, and so what we're having, uh, what we're doing together as a family this year is reading um, uh, Howard Thurman, uh, you know, uh, reading James Baldwin, um, yeah. and rethinking. Um, you know, Jesus and the dis- disinherited. Like, what does Jesus look like from the perspective of the disinherited? Um, and I think that's really changing, you know, the way that, and, and one of the reasons I did that, just to be like as honest as I can, um, is that uh, I wanted to sort of think about how we could all think about Jesus in a way that would be inoculated from the kind of Christian nationalism that he gets co-opted into, yeah. uh, right, in our current life. And I, it just seemed to me the safest way to do that was, well, how do African Americans think about Jesus? Yeah. yeah, they don't think of him looking like Jeff Spicoli. I'll tell you yeah, that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Robbie, thank you for yeah. writing the book. First yes. of all, oh, absolutely. Yeah, you're thank Secondarily, you for thanks for for showing up in the studio. It's uh, it's always nice to have somebody sitting across from that rather than yes, a computer screen. Not a little box. Yeah. Yeah. Every yes. time you write a book, you are welcome to come back. I'm sure this Great. is not going to be the last one. No, no I have a poker that. game every other week. You're welcome <laughs> to come back. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you both. Thank we you. We appreciate you. So I think that was a Hall of Fame mic drop answer to the final question that yeah. we asked. Yeah. I mean, I was so impressed by that. And I think particularly because it speaks to what we try to do on the show. I mean, the question is designed to kind of encourage people to think about changing their minds, but you get a wide range of responses to that question. (laughs) Some people more prepared than others. Without a doubt. (laughs) Well, and not only was he prepared, not only did he have an answer, he gave two different answers. You know, it really, it speaks to someone who prizes and cherishes, holds in high value, 
changing one mind, one's mind when when the facts change or your understanding of those facts change. And it's it's not a it's not a shame. It's not something to be afraid of. We we encourage it because we try to adopt that in our own lives. So, uh, not that's not the only question that I was I was uh, astounded by the answer to. So yeah, well, and something that I talk about a lot is being a lifelong learner, and you can tell that Robbie is obviously someone who is committed to that as well. Not sure. only all the books that he's writing, but just the the effort that he puts into ensuring that people are educated and learning about these topics in his books, but also through PRRI. And I mean, we certainly benefit from his work, not just through his books, but yeah. also through PRRI, which we often use when we're talking about things on the show, just to kind of see where everyone is at with the climate in the country. Sure. I am I always like talking to people, especially people who write books, and there's a, there's an extensive research pro- process that they go through. And it's always interesting to see them say things like, yeah, and I had no, I, you know, I started researching the book, I had an idea what I wanted to write about. And then I started learning like he didn't, it's not like he had all this in the back of his head. This is uh, laborious historical research and interviewing and traveling the country and talking to people it, and he's learning things as he goes right. that he was previously unaware of. So it's awesome, amazing book. I mean, we can't say enough. I mean, we're really gu- gushing here. So <laughs> hopefully, hopefully that speaks well. Yeah. Um, We'd love to know what you think. Again, we invite your participation. Um, we're going to be doing the the giveaway. So find this video on YouTube if you're listening to this on the podcast, on audio. And if you're on YouTube, leave a comment. And we will, at random, pick a comment and get the book, get in contact with you through that way, and then uh, send the book along. So. Yes. As always, we encourage your participation in this very important conversation, 657-464-7609. And of course, you can email a voice memo from your smartphone to idoubtit at dollamore.com. We are a listener-supported program, the program, uh, and we would invite you, encourage you to check out our Patreon page. It is patreon.com slash idoubtitpodcast. There you can pick a tier, see what's involved, and help support What we think is very important work, we would invite you to do so and would appreciate your consideration. Again, patreon.com slash I doubt it podcast. That's where you do it. We will see you next time. We appreciate your time, your attention, your passion for the country and for making people's lives better. Uh, Until we do see you next time for Brittany Page, I'm Jesse Dollimore and this has been I Doubt It.